Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today is Andrew O'Keefe, who has a fascinating background. He has studied the leadership of Indigenous groups around the world. This includes time in remote Australia, New Zealand, Africa, the Amazon and North America. This led to him writing his book, First Leaders, Leadership Principles of First Nations Societies for the Modern Leader. It provides insightful leaders into how we structure organisations, select and appoint leaders, motivate followers and influence culture. Before this research, Andrew had a more conventional career. After growing up in Broken Hill, he observed the cooperative relationship between management and the unions in this mining city. This interest led to him studying industrial relations and economics at the University of Sydney. His career has included time in the mining and manufacturing industries. He later filled senior HR roles with large organisations, including IBM and Optus. For the past 15 years, Andrew has run his own consulting and leadership education business, Hardwired Humans. This provides an excellent overview of what we can learn in the West from Indigenous leaders. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Andrew O'Keefe to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Graham. Andrew, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Uh, respecting, respecting other people. I guess it's respecting self as well. But, uh, yeah, what triggers with that concept is respect for the other person, respect for other people, and the package of experiences that have made that person who they are. Yeah. I saw in your background that you grew up in uh, Broken Hill. What was that experience like? Uh, we thought it was the centre of the universe uh, for <laughs> us. When we, uh, we travelled the 1,000 kilometres east to Sydney for holidays in our teenage years, we, we felt really sorry for Sydney people. We thought they were very isolated. Mm, interesting. Uh, growing up, I, I'm very proud of my background in Broken Hill. And well, what that really reflects is that I grew up in a, in a large and loving family. So mm. it wouldn't have mattered where we were, but uh, Broken Hill was part of my fabric. And was your father in the mines there or how, how did you come to grow up there? Yeah, so, um, so, where, so nowadays with my great-grandnieces, seventh generation Broken Hill. Wow. So my great-grandparents arrived uh, in a great mother's case as a, as a little girl, seven-year-old, as far as we can tell, and mum and dad were both born there. Mum worked briefly on the mine as a librarian after studying at university, and dad joined as a labour stroke apprentice and rose to being chief engineer on one of the major mines. Okay, yeah. And I, I also said that you observed there were some pretty positive relationships with the unions and the management there. How did that manifest itself? How did you see that was, uh, you know, a positive relationship? 
It's funny about the interest we have as little kids, isn't it? As teenagers, I just became interested in industrial relations, which is really the human side of interactions in the workplace. And Dad, uh, uh, he was first of all on the union side um, as an apprentice and then later as a tradesperson and then later then became you know, manager, so he he was on the mining manager's side, but it also meant that if you could imagine that characteristic of people growing up in a small community, the respect that you have for each other. Mm. And so I, I just observed that the, the relationships in Broken Hill were really strong between management and labour. In our era, you're in my era you know, in, in business and in human resources and the like, uh, Broken Hill had a somewhat notorious reputation, but that was unfair. And people people being there, uh, it was really both sides of that work relationship had the interests of the community at heart. Yeah. And so there were very few industrial stoppages. And they, they were in the days of the 80s where there were a lot of industrial disputes across the country. And so, yeah, Broken Hill people, I think from about the 1920s worked out that we were a long way away from everybody else that so we might as well work together as a community. Yeah, and I grew up in a, a small country town as well, Taree on the north wow. coast of New South mm. Wales. And I know what you mean. There was no sense of, you know, professional or white-collar, blue-collar. It was really, mm. um, you know, everyone was at the same school. Everyone had their, yeah. you know, did the same sports. There was a real That's right element to the town and um and i think that you know because uh it was so small people would also hear very quickly if someone did something which wasn't the right thing so there was that sort of um if you like a, a tribal element that sort of had an influence on how people mm. even work together yes yes after you uh completed your Higher school certificate there. Did you then go to university, Andrew? In nominating what course I wanted to do at university, I had no idea. And uh, sitting at the dining room table with my dad, and he was helping me, and uh, he's very generous. He just asked the Socratic question of all the subjects I talk about my work, what do you like talking about? And wow, I said industrial relations. Apparently, the brain sparks you know, a nanosecond before the rational thought enters your mind, wow, can you study industrial relations? He said, let's find out. And it was an unusual course at the time. There weren't many offerings, but there was one at Sydney University. Mm-hmm. So then I studied industrial relations as part of an economics degree at Sydney University. That's a, a great discussion, isn't it? You know, where in talking with your dad, you realise what really you know, it was your spark where you wanted to be involved and, and I guess, you know, the experiences you'd observed in the town contributed to that as well. That must have been a big change coming all the way to the big city and being quite a big person in a little pond to suddenly being a small person in a huge pond. What was that transition like for you? Uh, it was, was, was good in two ways. One, I wasn't a trailblazer mm-hmm. because uh, my... So I'm one of six children and two of my three elder siblings had already come to Sydney University. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't that sort of brave or daring or pioneering. And the second thing that really helped is that I lived in at St Paul's College with Sydney University and so day one you're meeting you know, heaps of other people and 
some of my best friends from that era of people who were at college and who were like-minded. Yeah, so that was uh, that was that was smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then back to yeah, you just triggered to something that the point of Dad's question was that Mum and Dad didn't mind what each of us studied or what we pursued in in our career or professional life. And their main point was that if we followed a path of a subject that we were curious about, we would always want to know more. Mm-hmm. That was that was really the key, and that that's why I'm. A really lucky person that I chose the right career for me, which was the human dimension of workplaces. Yeah. And uh, what was your first role? I briefly worked in Walton's, a retailer, mm-hmm. uh, and that was to move into industrial relations. Now, at, at that time also, I'd, um, I'd made contact with an employer association in the mining industry. That was in my blood, obviously. And then this particular group, six months after I'd started work, had a vacancy come up. And so the general manager or the state manager of that organisation called Australian Mines and Metals, uh, they contacted me and we fell in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And so I was with Australian Mines and Metals for about seven years in Sydney, Melbourne, back to Sydney. And we represented the in the industrial interests of mining and hydrocarbons type companies in their discussions with unions, presentations before the industrial commissions, tribunals, uh, award and agreement negotiations. So it was a dream job for somebody like me interested in the human dimension of work and industrial relations, I think, was just a really interesting entry point into the workplace in a sector that I felt really comfortable in. It was as I say, I grew up in it. And how would you um, describe the leadership you experienced in that in that first significant role? Well, I the person I worked for, Norm Amos, I can name him because he's just a wonderful gentleman and was a, such a generous manager of such high standards. Uh, so being the, in effect, apprentice to Norm was just, um, it was just such a, such a gift for me and a, and a privilege, and it's um, provided a role model for me too. That you know, he was there for me. Uh, he yeah set the high standards, but was so supportive and encouraging, and a, a great developer. And I could model off him and his devotion to customer client service. So mm. yeah, I was I was um, yeah fortunate in that, and also the mining industry was an industry that was really well developed in terms of leadership, uh, safety. Um, so it was, a, it, was a good, it was a good, well-run industry. And where were you located in, in that role? Yeah, so just in the centre of, of Sydney, then centre of Melbourne, but a lot of the work was visits to mine sites, refineries, mm. a little bit offshore in Bass Strait out of Melbourne. Yeah, and and I saw that you also had you know some senior roles with IBM and and Optus, you know two very well known organisations, uh, two very much multinational organisations with um, you know Optus having its head office in Singapore. How would you describe the culture of those companies compared to the mining environment? The special part of IBM, I was at IBM longer than, than Optus, and so let's talk about IBM, is that the, the business operated so very, very well from both commercial 
but I'm thinking uh, particularly about uh, the human dimension, the employee relations and the like. And what what was the secret? Because being interested in this, it, it's always a, like a subtext where the answer is. You know, how does this place hum along so well and mm. the quality of managers get on well with their people and, and looking under rocks trying to find the answer? <laughs> and what's the subtext here? And it was really the the focus on managers serving their people, mm. that there were enough, there was focus plus then enough feedback loops, closing the loop on any manager that wasn't focused on serving their people. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of tools and support and training to make sure managers were focusing on the people Mm. Um, the role of HR was to support the leaders, the managers in their relationship, not to get in the middle of that relationship, and that we had enough feedback loops of those managers who were not delivering on, on that commitment. Mm. Then with those feedback loops, we were able to attend to that, hopefully improving those individual leaders, uh, getting them refocused or reskilled. But if not, if that wasn't really their skill, then slowly and respectfully they would probably be moved out of leadership roles. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure this is going back a while, but what you described is quite contemporary and and I'm sure in my experience wasn't necessarily active in other organisations, this concept of almost servant leadership and, you know, having a service approach to the people that you're trying to lead is, uh, you know, it's talked about now, but, I'm sure we're talking a while back because I know you've had a long yeah. career in your own business. <laughs> um, so it was unusual, wouldn't you say? Yeah, in that mid-'80s to mid-'90s I was there. Mm. Yeah, and really an enlightened view, and and that comes back to uh, really good values, particularly of the founder, the founder and the, son's, the son of the founder. Mm. So they had all also a very at that time very stable history of senior executives, mm. which mm. you need to have to have such I think a strong culture that endured. Yeah, yep. And they were very active, you know, in in the hardware and in personal computers and that sort of thing. But then they hit a real tough time, didn't they? Where that business sort of wasn't working as well. Why do you think they missed that rapid trend into sort of the services type area? Um, there's a positive out of that. I mean, there's a blind spot, but the positive is, and I was in the middle of that in 90, the recessions of 91, and in living through that, observing and also being a, a, having a key role to play in, in what we went through in the early 90s, the way I was observing that and felt about it was, wow, how special is it that a company could come out of the trough that we went into? Mm. Uh, uh, there'd be very few companies that could respond, mm. you know, cut 30% of the staff by mm. voluntary uh, redundancy and, cu- and come out of it and still service, mm. service clients, still deliver, still do, do the work that you had to do on the following Monday. Yeah. With a third, with a third less people. Yeah. Wow. You had you had to be a special fabric and a proud organisation to come through that. Yeah. What do you think led to the blind spot? Uh, it's an overconfidence dimension, which is one of the great classics of human nature. That mm. uh, 
that you become so so positive, optimistic, which is, I know your this is your special interest associated with good mental health. So there's some really good aspects of being optimistic, but if that leads to, and it's well-documented area of research about denial, mm. um, which I did see that too in that early part of that beginning of that rece- recession in Easter of that year, because the denial's about not able to contemplate the possibility of that other option being true. Yeah. And so you can deny that for a long time until a catastrophic event happens. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you then moved into your own business. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about that business and how it evolved for you? I got uh, re- really interested in the subject of human nature and how that plays out in the workplace. The key concept being that through the long journey of human history, we've only recently moved into workplaces, and that's no time to alter what it means to be human. And credit for that key concept to a person who became a mentor, Professor Nigel Nicholson at London Business School. And as a HR practitioner, I, I read some of his work and said, wow, that explains a lot of things that the nine instincts that are documented about humans, one of them being that overly confident to the point of denying reality, that explains a lot of of the good things about work and also explains a lot of the challenging aspects of work. If If we led according to the basic human instincts, if we had HR tools such as performance systems designed around those nine instincts, then it's going to make workplaces more positive and productive and also leadership uh, better and more enjoyable. Uh, So I got really interested in that area of of work and application because I'm a practitioner and I was enjoying it so much I just uh, decided with my wife's support that that would be my area of uh, consulting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm happy that, yeah, pleased to say that there are enough other organisations and other HR, particularly leaders out there who shared my interest. And so a lot of the work was around leadership development, leadership training and coaching and change management. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and, and part of that too, Graham, was um, to teach humans a good place to do that is at zoos. <laughs> and so I also spent a fair bit of time running these client workshops at zoos as venues and so that became a really good place to take this view of us as, as humans, as a primate. A lot of these characteristics we share with other primates, such as the chimpanzees at Taronga Zoo. So we'd pop out and see the chimps and see a lot of the same characteristics of hierarchy and dominance and relationships and bonding and reassurance and um, uh, territory and border protection. And uh, so it became a good a good place to teach something which I found useful, and I I think other people found useful about trying to solve these challenges of workplaces. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. The first resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster, 
This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. Yeah, that's a really fascinating insight, you know, to look at the, you know, the animal kingdom. What did uh, people comment on that was helpful about that experience? Uh, so that we, certainly around the framework that, wow, you know, human nature is quite a mystery, can be a mystery, both in terms of what other people thought and acted like and the way that I, the individual, might have thought and acted. So uh, it was, yeah, very helpful to people in terms of a framework mm. um, that they were then better at able to observe. Uh, with a framework, you can then make better choices about the way you act, knowing what will work and what won't. Yeah. Uh, it helped uh, one of the one of the you know by comparison to the other primate species hierarchy uh, and the power relationships became very very helpful for people to understand hierarchy and power mm. has a bad rap but really the bad rap is when hierarchy and power is used inappropriately mm. so it, it helps to just observe the natural pattern of relationships and relative power, but also about using those power relationships really well. Some of the absolute best leaders that one gets to work with is where power is used well. You know, the best yeah. bosses I've worked for are just absolutely delightful to work for. Yeah. And it wasn't that they were powerless. It was, in fact, that they used their power really well. In back to the IBM conversation, you know, power was used really, really well and productively and constructively. Yeah. And um, then you began a fascination with First Nations people, which led to you writing a book. So how did that evolve? This curiosity factor. Um, so in 2016, my wife Jude and I were going to Africa on holiday, and that involved in part safari in Kenya. And I thought it'd be really interesting to inquire about leadership in Maasai society and it's that yeah just curious interested in humans the human relationship journey the human instincts journey so almost like an evolution of that would be I wonder what leadership means in these societies that have endured for millennia mm. and so I reached out to the two safari camps and they said yeah that'll be easy to organize meeting with some Maasai and some elders that your guides are Maasai and so the two, three contacts on that first trip were guides at the camps. And, and these folks, uh, they work in the Western economy, but when they're not on shift, they head home to their village generally. Mm. And so they're absolutely living you know, their social practices and their life in their small village. And, yeah, so they you know, were very interested to share uh, their their experiences and sitting under giant acacia trees with the you know elephants uh, just on the side of us was was such a nice setting to just explore leadership. So what what questions did you ask them? There were two two style of questions and uh, and the the game changer came halfway through. Um, that the first questions was. 
uh, around yeah, what, what leadership, on some societies, by the way, I couldn't ask what leadership means because I didn't want to assume a leadership fabric, but I knew a little bit about Maasai society mm. from a previous visit. So I was able to ask, you know, what, is, what does leadership mean? Who gets to be the leader? What, what role do they serve? Uh, what level of decisions do they serve? So questions like that. And then the game changer was halfway through what was you know, typically a probably two-hour interview with one person, several interviews. But halfway through, I changed it from to make it more personal mm. about their leader. And each of these people on this and a subsequent trip, 11 Maasai, they all in a, reported to a different chief. Halfway through, I'd turn it personal. So I'd say, so, Graham, you're, you're chief. Are they a good leader? Um, what amazed me was that, that that question immediately triggered tears in the eyes of thinking about this adorable person in their life. Wow. And I, I went back to my key contact, Nagila, and I said, Nagila, I don't know many workplace leaders who trigger that reaction. And so the key question from me to him was, how do you get leadership so right? <laughs> that That is the experience your people have with, with their leader or with leadership. And uh, so that, yeah, we then talked further. But then on a walking around uh, in Sydney where we live soon after that trip, I had this welling of euphoria, this energy went through my body about how stimulating that experience was in hearing this different perspective and that, gosh, I've only just scratched the surface. Mm. Wow, I'd really like to investigate this subject of leadership in First Nations to see what patterns there are and if that experience in other societies is similar to Maasai. And um, what answer did you get when you asked to ask how does that lead to tears in your eyes? You know, it's, a, it's obviously a real emotional connect. We able to uncover what was the root cause of those tears in the eye. Yeah, so in Maasai and then it is a pattern in the other societies um, that, well, one is the, the incredible care that they take in choosing the leader and bear in mind that this is a, amongst a crop of young people in their first leadership position, a crop of young people who the elders already know mm. and yet at the time when they're putting a group of warriors together who will next who will then have a leader chief appointed from that group of 500 to 1,000 young men, mm. they take two or three years to choose and that comes from a level of observation, conversation that they have with, in effect, a shortlisted group. So the incredible care. And then the second key thing, which we, I think in workplaces we can learn so much from and alter our practice of appointment, is it's really the followers who mm. get to choose their chief. Interesting. We can talk some more about that, but that that was the, the key. That One of the elders told me, a key person on this conversation, was that we as the elders are merely guiding the choice of the followers. We would not impose on the followers a leader who they do not want. Mm. And so if the followers who take 
plays such an important role in that selection. How does that happen? <laughs> is it a little action or how do, how do they identify the one that they think is going to be right for them? Uh, through, through inquiry and conversation. Mm. So they just talk to, there's seven of, the, of that 500 or 1,000 warriors, there's seven who become the cabinet. Mm-hmm. And so the the elders are really checking in with the seven, and the seven are then checking in with you know the wider group. Mm. And it might be a short list of two, three, four warriors who might fill the chief role. Mm-hmm. And it's just over that two or three years, and and the elders are teaching them, teaching them, teaching them more about the Maasai culture during that time, and the the rituals and the the lore and. Uh, the practices, the precedents, mm. um, and so there's lots and lots of opportunity for observation, mm. and it's just that care taken, observing, and then checking in even the night before the appointment. Are you the warriors? Are you the followers? Happy with the person we're about to appoint? Wow! And you looked at a number of other um, cultures in different countries. Was that were their practices similar or were there differences? But there were differences but with the same intent. Uh, so now the difference in the appointment of leaders or how leaders get to be chosen and the nature of leadership depends on the level in which the society is organised. So in the Maasai, we're talking about a society organised at a divisional level if we use workplace language. Mm-hmm. Uh, some societies uh, are organised at the band level, depending on the nature of the, of the environment and what sort of population the land can carry. Uh, Bushmen in the Kalahari, for instance, uh, were organised in small family groups in a band of average of 25 people. Mm-hmm. In the western desert of Central Australia on the border of what's now Northern Territory and Western Australia, uh, the Pintabi were organised mainly around a family group six, seven people, and then periodically in gatherings of family groups making a band of 20 or 30 people. Uh, New Zealand, a much more hospitable natural environment. Um, Hapua villages could be uh, much larger, uh, up to 80 to 150 people. Now in the Mohawk case, so their traditional lands were most of upstate New York and I met a community near Montreal. Abundant environment, uh, they were organised in traditional times not only as a nation of what's estimated about 9,000 people, but the Haudenosaunee people uh, being the common language group in that part of North America uh, were numbered about 25,000 people. So their organisation design and their leadership structure was a confederacy covering 25,000 people. Mm. So leadership means a lot, something very different in different Mm. societies, but there was that commonality and certainly the the societies organised at a high level, that level of care taken in the choice of chief and in leadership positions was, was common as was the involvement of the followers in the Mohawk case through the clan mothers, they filled the role of choosing the leader. 
Yeah. And what um, can developed countries or organisations in developed countries learn from those first nations, people and leaders? And have you any had any success in getting them to adopt those uh, those practices? Yeah, so in terms of my, my special focus is in workplaces. So if we say what, what's the relevance and because of my practical background, I was, I was always, always, always looking at what are the practical implications that workplaces can make of this. So if we just take, take those two elements of, uh, well, let's take the three that we've touched on, organisation design. Mm. There's a natural pattern for humans and hence it's present in all these traditional human societies, hence it should apply in workplaces is structuring your work around small family groups, which are teams of seven or thereabouts people, within a department of something larger but maxing out at about 150. So it might be smaller department of 20, uh, mid-size 50 to 80. Don't have a department of larger than 150, just have many departments or villages mm. uh, so that people get a sense of identity, belonging, Therefore, good outlook and loyalty and being productive. So that's that's one. Two is the care in which we take in appointing leaders. Mm. That is can't just good practice, I don't think, can be a case of if we hire externally putting uh, uh, an ad out there in terms of social media more likely nowadays, you know, one or two interviews, maybe a battery of psychological testing or inbox exercises and making an appointment. That, that, is, that is high risk because it's really hard to work out the complete person or the total package. Mm. So taking greater care, part of taking greater care is uh, giving a preference to a solid internal candidate because bear in mind the external candidate has an advantage because whereas the hiring person knows the total package and therefore the potential, the possible weaknesses of the internal candidate. Yeah. They're magnified because you can't possibly work out the weaknesses or more politely said interference factors of external candidates. And so yeah. they on paper in an interview look like a, a better quality perfect. candidate, perfect <laughs> candidate until a week, a month in, we realise that they're like the rest of us. <laughs> Imperfect. Um, and then the third one, which would be, I think, a big change and a really healthy one in workplace practice is to involve the followers in choosing their leader. They have a lot invested. They have a lot of knowledge. See, what, why is it that, and it's the history of the last 100 years, what, why is it that we think the person above the vacant position has all knowledge required and all insight yeah. to make the best appointment. That, yeah. That's just the arrogance of 100 years of leadership practice. Yeah, Just turn that around and the leader of who's making the appointment should just inquire and get the involvement of the followers. Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, actually a good friend of mine, um, Ted Dorasami, he was uh, managing director of Oral-B for a while and, um, you know, he 
first of all, made some appointments which didn't work out. And so he decided to include his team as part of the interview process. And that led to a far higher success rate, you know, in terms of getting people on board, which is exactly exactly what you're saying. You know, people that um, probably have some better understandings of the pros and cons of the leader and, and also they can probably see things that the leader can't always see but other people can in their conversations mm-hmm. sort of things so uh, yeah uh, you, you asked in your question just a moment ago you asked about uh case practices or where this might have been applied certainly around organizational design because th- this what what i found in first nation societies fitted with what i was thinking about and where of the work of the last 15 years i've been doing in the area of human instincts, so there is this pattern linked including to brain size, by the way, that groups of mm. up to about 150 matches mm. the size of our brain mm. and therefore the capacity and the relationship building. And so a lot of my clients have um, applied that method uh, through the structuring of their population. Yeah. And then also in terms of the, the nature and quality of leader, uh, then yeah, we would both, I think, know organisations that you know have taken on board and transformed the quality of leadership, and then and then also, uh, yeah, one place I worked, like you, just that oral B example, the chief executive would involve the followers and and mm-hmm. check check in with them and just ask them and have those conversations and discover what more insight there is and. And there's also a big message to the leader if they come in having been appointed with the support of their followers. That sounds like a really healthy uh, start to that special relationship. It's been a real pleasure catching up today, Andrew. Um, very, very interesting, you know, hearing your observations about uh, other cultures and what we can learn from them. And, uh, you know, we do have to keep evolving, don't we? We, you know, we can't uh, just assume that how things have been run in the last five years are going to be right for the next five years. Yes, and just and 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 that this is an area of investigation of leadership that hasn't been included in workplace practice. A hundred years of workplace practice as a discipline. We kicked off it by um, ignoring at that time, ignoring First Nations wisdom, and so our leadership practices, our concepts, our approaches. Have, have ignored this and this is an opportunity to rectify that, to inject the, the ancient wisdom which has been developed and fine-tuned over millennia. And, and I'd like to give credit to the people I met in these First Nations communities who, who were so supportive of the concept that workplace leaders might benefit mm. from their people's wisdom. Yeah, wonderful. My uh, final question always is, you know, if you could go back, Andrew, to when you just finished high school in, in Broken Hill, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I, I probably would have got faster on to if you've got a, a strong motivation, then just follow that strong motivation and wonderful things will happen. Other people will attach to that energy and, um, yeah, your objective or the journey that you're on will, will be accomplished. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Andrew, for being part of The Caring CEO. Thanks, Graham. 
Thanks for joining us today. And we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.